Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Asercha. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs minus Devin Shepard. Sadly, she had some work-related things to take care of, so she couldn't be with us today. But I'm still excited for the episode. Yeah, definitely. This is going to be a good one. So last night I watched The Wailing, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but it was really fucking good. I've seen it. You have? Yes. Do you have any thought? Did you like it? I don't have any thoughts. You don't have any thoughts. Well, how do you not have any thoughts? It's like a three-hour movie. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Um, I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> That's insane. Anyway, I think you should run out and watch it right away if you haven't seen it. It's on Amazon Prime right now, I think through Shudder. And it's a really interesting cop supernatural drama. And the director has a new movie out called The Medium, which I'm really hmm. excited to catch also. I've been going on a 1930s binge. I love the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Not the original, but the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Frederick March. I discovered pre-code movies, which was like basically the Hayes Code came out in 1934 or was doubled down on in 1934. So every movie before that, they just like, don't give a fuck. I watched a movie called The Story of Temple Drake, which is free on YouTube. And it's it's. Like, literally a rape-revenge movie in 1933. That was one of the movies that made them want to do the Hayes Code. Because they were like, yo, you can't do this. <laughs> and it's great. Wow, you've just <laughs> mentioned a bunch of movies I haven't seen. Although I might have seen the original, uh, one of the original Dr. Jekylls and Hydes, like, forever ago. Yeah, this is the, the 1931 one with uh, Frederick March. Uh, the original was silent from 1920, um, but the Frederick March one is very good. It's It feels like it came out later. Like, it has really inventive camera techniques. March is fantastic. He won an Oscar for this movie. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I always get interested because like Citizen Kane is credited with all these inventions, camera technology, but I'm not yeah. sure that's totally true because often I'll, I'll watch movies that are coined as the first to do something and then I'll watch an older movie and see they've done it. Now, I know Citizen yeah. Kane did a lot because initially the sound was recorded on the same device as the camera, so they couldn't throw it down mm. a waterfall or whatever like they did in Ben-Hur, I think. The original Ben-Hur, they did crazy shit with the camera. They like had it on top of horses, on people's faces. It was basically a GoPro. It was really cool. Yeah, because in the silent era, everything was nuts. Uh, you watch movies from 1928 and then movies from 1929, then, well, you're going to have a hard time finding good movies from 1929 because there aren't any. Uh, but in 1928, when it was still the late silent movies, they were fucking crazy <laughs> doing all sorts of random shit with the camera. And you're like, yo, this is awesome. And then it all just like becomes really, really tame immediately. But Dr. And Jekyll and Mr. High, like, I, I wonder how they did this stuff because of what you're talking about. Like they do. The movie starts with a three minute POV shot. Wow. That probably took a lot of rigging, but you heard it from yeah. Mr. Jacob's mouth. There were no good movies from 1929. So any <laughs> listeners, if you know a good movie from 1929, send it our way and we will be the judges. Yes, please. I've also been playing a lot of The Last of Us 2. Mm. Have you been watching the show? Yeah, I have been watching the show. I, I've seen, I guess, episode four at the time of this recording is coming out tonight, I think. Yeah. That's so right. I, I've watched the first three, which are very good, I think. Very good. With like very small reservations. One of the things, I think this is without being a spoiler, uh, the second game got a lot of hate before it even came out because you don't play as the main character, Joel. Instead, you're playing as Ellie, who happens to be a lesbian. And I think this went over most people's heads and it speaks to the pessimism of the world that you kind of have the one person who's immune also, you learn that in five minutes in the first game and the show uh, to this disease, Cordyceps, and she happens to be a lesbian. So the chances of her getting pregnant and passing on this immunity is even lower than normal. And that just adds to the pessimism of the future. And I know what you're going to say, but I'm sorry, they probably don't have artificial insemination when total society breakdown. I've never in any way even considered that. We also don't know if her immunity is genetic or not. Like we don't know where it comes from. It is a, a physical condition though. Like it, it has to do yes. with her physiology. So yes, it seems she was born with it. Probably. 
but right. not it, it could have also come in from when she was bit like maybe some weird chemical thing happened when she was bit that caused her to get immunity like we we don't know i will say also though that her her lesbianism became canon in like 2014 that they released a dlc on the first game and that's where they confirmed that she is gay so people being homophobic when the second game came out are like ignoring the canon <laughs> well yeah they are like, and, and i remember i played yeah. that dlc and it was a big deal and i think that got a little hate when it came out too maybe it's a great dlc I just I just like this twist on the pessimism because the chances of her getting pregnant if it is a genetic thing which we're kind of led to assume I think just diminishes and I think that just yeah. adds to this post-apocalyptic world where like nothing's fair and no no one seems to see that angle and I think it's a cool angle so I think uh, it thematically works better than it might be with a lot of other characters so anyone claiming that it's kind of shoehorned in LGBTQ+ I think is missing a really cool point to the show and the uh, games. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about Western stuff, Eastern stuff, maybe some stuff in between, and the entire world might be involved in our critical subject matter on this uh, podcast. As we reach critical mass, hopefully you guys will understand what we're talking about. So David, you're going to introduce our first film this week. <clears throat> it's Orson Welles speaking. I just saw the impossible happen before my very eyes. I saw a man grow smaller and smaller day by day. I saw the loneliest and most frightened creature on earth living a nightmare in a world of giants. That was the actual words on the trailer. Scott Carey is exposed to a mysterious cloud of radiation while vacationing on his brother's boat with his wife Louise. Six months later, Scott is exposed again, this time to common insecticides. A week later, he notices his clothes are too big. A week after that, Louise no longer has to reach in order to kiss him. Though it should be impossible, Scott is shrinking. He loses his job, becomes a national freak sensation swarmed by reporters, and he becomes more and more hostile toward his wife. He briefly has an affair with a little person woman, the only person he finds shorter than himself. Until she isn't. Eventually, Scott finds himself living in a dollhouse, more bitter and resentful than ever. When a cat gets into the house and mistakes him for a mouse, Scott flees into the basement. But as he's trapped down there, Louise believes him cat food. She's out of the picture now, as is all the rest of human society. Scott's descent has led him here, alone in a cellar, living in a matchbox scavenging for small bits of food in a deadly mousetrap and atop a ledge, scaling cabinets like they were the cliffs of Everest, crossing inch-wide gaps as vast as the Grand Canyon, and dueling with a predator in his mist, an ordinary house spider, made a gigantuan threat. Finally, after surviving a great flood and slaying the spider, Scott finds that he has now shrunk small enough to squeeze through the screen window. Emerging into a nature that now feels like another dimension, Scott learns to accept his fate. He will never return to normal size, but he still exists. He is The Incredible Shrinking Man, directed by Jack Arnold and starring Grant Williams from a script by Richard Madison based on his own book. And Richard Allen Simmons as well as an uncredited writer on the movie. Right. So that was a great introduction, by the way. But... Thank you. I, I like how this movie kind of fits nicely into this like 50s optimistic science fiction kind of realm, like the thing from another world, or it's really similar to the day the earth stood still. Um, mm. And it seems like in this, in the midst of these films is uh, America's having an extreme case of prosperity, like economic prosperity is through the roof. Everyone's kind of rich following World War II. America has been solidified as the single superpower in the in the world pretty much at this point, despite some tensions with the Cold War. What do you think this movie has to say about the so-called American dream? I mean, I think it is kind of exposing the fraudulency of it. We have this guy who seems like the typical American man. They talked about casting Grant Williams as someone who is average person, uh, 
I mean, he's a, an attractive man, but he's blonde, which at the time was never the leading man type. He he was more regular than the typical actors you would see in a movie. But he lives in a nice house. He has a, a normal, boring job. I'm not even sure what his job is. He has that relationship with his wife where he's like, oh, get me beers. And she's like, oh, only if you help me with dinner. And <laughs> it's like just this playful bickering that they do she very much has this like i love lucy kind of style to her she definitely does the way she's made up i like i like that first scene a lot how they kind of bicker about uh the beer a little bit because he knows what he's doing there and he's making a joke of it he's kind of making a joke of the stereotype that men uh boss around their wives yeah. And she she's in on the joke and she's like, oh, it's Definitely. so nice here. I'm not going to do that. And she's like, he's like, fine, I'll do something more difficult if you get me a beer. And she's like, OK, which is funny. <laughs> I, I do that with my wife all the time. But then as the movie goes on, they kind of return to that. And now it's not a joke anymore that he starts to be very demanding of her. And she's like has become sort of a mother to him. She definitely takes on the role of mother, which is. Kind of cool how that speaks to an ingrained fear of all men that they're marrying their mother. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when he's sitting in all these chairs and she's towering over him, like the physical power dynamic has shifted because traditionally it's seen as better to marry a guy who's taller than you as a woman, right? That seems to be the stereotype. Yes. But yeah, he, he has to deal with this of uh, looking up to his wife and she becomes the breadwinner and it, it switches the power dynamic completely. And, you know, this is a guy who was a veteran and was uh, yep. confident in his self-standing up until this point. It is sort of shredding away the things that he's taking for granted, his role in the world, which he felt comfortable in. And he, he was happy to have embraced this American lifestyle. And now he's sort of realizing how fleeting it is, realizing how it's not enough, that, that this does not actualize him he doesn't have like significant male friends who he can talk to about feeling incompetent or anything mm -hmm. like that e even his brother is like kind of a dick <laughs> yeah yeah he feels completely like emasculated by just being a little shorter than his wife and then later yeah even picking up the telephone becomes kind of a struggle one of my favorite images is when he's writing his memoirs and the pencil <laughs> is gigantic in his hand. It's I like know. he looks like a child with a crayon there. And then he's yelling. He's having tantrums to his wife because he feels so completely powerless. And I yeah. think it's not only like the gender role reversal. I think I think it also kind of speaks to like the materialism, like all these materials that he had control over. And this carries on even to the second half of the film where there's a hard shift. He needs to contend with and overcome as an obstacle, like just matchbox because become problems stairs become mountains everything changes and uh his whole world becomes oppressive to him that mousetrap scene is freaking amazing when it's like it goes on for like two minutes or something of just dealing with this simple trap and trying not to be killed as he goes for this tiny little bit of cheese <laughs> it's also uh he throws a piece of cake to a bird in one scene and he starts laughing because the bird it just eats it up very quickly and wants more. Whereas him, that would be an entire meal because he's holding, you know, it's bigger than a big ass hamburger in his hand. And that would be his wheel. So he starts laughing because he realizes how tiny he's gotten and he's gotten even smaller. Yeah, it's like this hysterical laughter is like mm -hmm. this just response and him just completely breaking down as he has. I, I mean, he basically has feels like it feels at some point like he. I'm not going to say he has nothing to live for, but he definitely feels like he has nothing to live for. He's living in a dollhouse for a while, which is also another feminine symbol. So he, he kind of has to take care of a, a dollhouse. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned the dollhouse because that is kind of like the pinnacle of like his emasculation. That's like, yes, the the last that's really the last place he's in. while he's still considered a person almost. He, yeah. he becomes like an insect after then where. He has to just contend in the wild to the basement. He's scurrying around as prey for spiders, right? He, he's a he's a fly, more or less. It's ironic to me. I only like just pieced this together this morning, but he is sprayed by insecticides and then he has to fight a spider. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot he was sprayed by insecticides. It's... <laughs> Which is also kind of an American dream 
uh, themology in some way. Themology? Is that a word? I don't know. Insecticides being like the somewhat modern invention of like, oh, we need to keep our lawns nice and, and mm-hmm. well. We need to prevent the crops from being eaten by, by insects. So they have this new invention that's going to repel insects and it's more processing the food. And that's what causes him to shrink. It's literally the progress of society has reached this point with the white picket fences and and the the mowing your lawns and now he's shrinking. Yeah, it it is kind of interesting how technology has kind of conquered man in this film. Yeah. Um, because <clears throat> the way he sees it, he feels like he's conquered the world more or less. Like mankind has been able to uh, systematically organize the entire environment to suit their needs, but the systematic organization organizes him to become smaller than his environment and he needs to deal with that. Exactly. Even when he's in the basement, so much of his struggle is during is dealing with the artificiality of, of progress that, uh, you know, he's in this vast, empty space where he needs to scale this like completely vertical cabinet. Um, mm-hmm. And it's only when he gets out, out back into nature, sort of a return to away from humanity that he's able to embrace what he's become. It is kind of interesting how the film does really sort of drop those gender role um, discussion midway through once he ends up in the basement. Somewhat. But it, it wasn't always the case because initially it was supposed to be a Black Widow spider. Yes. Right. And the reason that it was changed to a tarantula was strictly technical that the technology at the time and even probably today it would be difficult. They, just, they couldn't get like good focus on a Black Widow spider. It was too small. So they used a tarantula, which makes absolutely no sense. It's also not even a tarantula that would be native to America. It's a, I think it's from Mexico um, mm. because the spiders are bigger there. <laughs> so. I also don't think tarantulas usually spin webs. They, they don't, or at least not in that way. Um, I think they have webs, but they, they don't spin like these complex webs. So it, mm. it, it makes no sense for it to be a tarantula. That, that's not real. But yeah, going back to the idea that it would have been a Black Widow is that a Black Widow is also a more feminine symbol as well. So he's still sort of battling women in some sense. Uh, cats are often associated with a female gender. I mean, obviously cats are not all female. And I, I think the cat in the movie is a male. It's named Butch. Uh, it probably is, but it is also a pussy cat, you know. So <laughs> the filmmakers knew they were doing that. It's also... I. Our audience probably understands this, and they, or they know this. Um, Black widows eat their their lovers after they uh, conceive. The women do. Yeah, the the women eats the male yeah. after they mate. Uh, it's similar. I think praying mantises do that too. I think yeah, praying mantises did it too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have read the movie as like a symbol for uh, him, basically a metaphor for him no longer being able to pleasure his wife. Uh, huh. Which, I mean, he totally can still pleasure his wife he just needs to get creative with it uh i mean not when he's the size of an insect i don't think no no no. he can't just needs Hmm. to think outside the box there (laughs) that that, that's a great visual uh thanks for sharing (laughs) you're welcome Uh, yeah yeah i mean he does he does uh pierce the uh tarantula at the end maybe that's a thing he He gets underneath it and penetrates it i that's wow I yeah. think that's probably thinking too far into it. One one of the things we <laughs> haven't mentioned yet that ties into this gender role reversal is his relationship with the little person, Clarice. I really like his interaction with her because it seems like he's flirting with the idea of having an affair or he's already having an affair, which I might have thought could be happening. It's just off screen. Possibly. Because he's basically dating her. And he feels like he finally has control over the world because he once again has a woman who's smaller than him. But then mm-hmm. the moment he shrinks a little bit more, which, I mean, to be fair, he thought he cured his disease, but his life is in shatters. Yeah, in case you, I, I left this out of my summary, but in case you guys don't remember, uh, there's a bit when the doctors think they found a way to stop him from shrinking, and this happens during that. So when he realizes he's shorter than her, it's mm-hmm. recognizing that the doctor's solution was only temporary and they don't actually have anything. Right. There's also a bit in this social commentary where because he's seen as like a, this freakish spectacle, because he actually meets Clarice at a circus for circus freaks, the media makes the circus out of his life. 
So that's why he needs to go to this place of an actual circus, compare himself to these people, and then say, oh, I'm still better than them. I can still be kind of normal. I think that's kind does of Does he say there. he's better than them? I don't, I don't know that he does. I mean, I kind of read that bit as him kind of checking his privilege to to use the modern terminology that he's right recognizing that he is just like these people and he is seeing their humanity for the first time whereas before he had this affliction he would not have that that's kind of how i read that piece right but i think the turmoil he's facing internally is through his profiteering off his condition like a freak show and then he goes to the mm. freak show to stop profiteering off it and feel normalized and that yeah. way, he, I think he can separate himself from them in that way because he's not going to the circus to perform as a circus performer. He's no, he going there yeah. to get away from prying eyes. But I, yeah. I, I, do, I yeah. do see where you're coming from with the checking his privilege. Yeah, although, I mean, you can also say then that when he does start to shrink smaller than him, his extreme reaction is partially that maybe a, a bit of him was like, I... I'm better than this, but at least there is something. And now it's like, oh my God, I'm worse than a circus freak. I'm I'm mm-hmm. lower than a circus freak. And and thinking that's like the most horrifying thing ever. That he he still hasn't reached that actualization that he gets at the end, the self-actualization from the ending. He's not there yet. And then he has to go hide in the uh dollhouse. And it's at this point in the movie where he's chased by the cat down to the basement. And it does become kind of like a Robinson Crusoe str- struggle to survive off the land, right? Which mm. is the basement. We we did mention it, it does change from man versus woman and man versus society to man versus nature. He's broken down yes. to his smallest components. Like as he shrinks, the complexity of his conflict becomes simpler. It becomes more almost primitive in a way. And he becomes like pre-technology man, pre-relationship man. He is an individual versus the world. But it is an artificial nature to some extent as well. That it is a cellar, not a patch of dirt. That is true. But I, I would say that his condition would basically be the same if he was out in nature versus out in the basement, right? Yeah. He would still have to survive in the same way. He'd be maybe more or less creative depending on the situation. I mean, the ending is supposed to be like he's safe now, but I would say like, oh, you're out in nature. There's a lot more spiders, man. <laughs> Yeah, I I didn't get the sense that he was safe, but I mentioned this when we started talking about this. It is an optimistic film due to the ending. He understands Mm. his struggle and he finds significance in the pushing of it. Kind of like the myth of Sisyphus, which I think actually released not long before this movie came out. Oh, interesting. For those of you who know, that's Kumo. Kumo. The the myth of Sisyphus was that Zeus, Zeus tortured Sisyphus by forcing him to roll a boulder up a mountain eternally for all eternity he would roll it up to the top it would roll down you have to roll it up again and Camus wrote a whole book in his absurdism why basically why you shouldn't commit suicide but that you should find a sense of meaning in the struggle of existence even if it seems futile and i yeah i kind of feel like his name's scott right scott yes same name as paul rudd's ant-man um (laughs) which Uh, we did not we did not choose this to tie into ant-man it just kind of worked out that way there's a new ant-man movie but that's so funny i I was telling my wife the whole time like this is the guy ant-man's based off of which i I was just pulling out of my ass but i I think you're actually right it is based ant-man is i I think it i think ant-man is partially inspired by this and partially inspired by them with the the Mm. giant ants Mm. but go on sorry back to your absurdism right well at the end of the film, Scott finds a sense of meaning within his struggle and a kind of significance, no matter how small he is, dealing with the universe. And they show a bunch of images of the cosmos comparing man's plight and significance to the galactic nature of things. And I think this is kind of yeah. a parallel to the kind of breakthroughs in like quantum physics. And we are finding out for not really the first time, but we're finding out more in depth how extremely large and extremely small the universe is and how mankind fits in all of this. And it is kind of a spiritual struggle to see like, why does it matter? Why not be nihilistic when not only are we too big to be significant to the small things, but we're way too small to be significant to the big things. So I think this is kind of a Sisyphean struggle that Scott's going through. So I think it's kind of more interesting than a lot of the other optimistic sci-fi films of this era. I like that explanation. I 
love absurdism. Uh, I wasn't expecting this conversation to go there, but I'm glad it did. It, it's almost like he's entered a new dimension, which also happens in Ant-Man. <laughs> that he, he's shrunk so small that he no longer is even comparing himself to other humans. He no longer is smaller than a person. He's just the only person in this new realm of existence. Yeah, it, it's it's cool. It's cool how they handle Louise fading out of the movie as well, that there's sort of a bit where it's cutting back and forth between Scott and Louise still on the surface, wondering if he's alive. And it's almost like teasing the possibility that she'll find him. And they played it out as long as they can until there's this flood as she's moving out. And after the flood, just like, oh, she's leaving. And then that's that. And she's out of the movie, never comes back. I, I also like how the narration takes over more. and. I feel like yeah. that is a technical device just because there's no other characters on screen for him to converse with. Yeah. But it also solidifies his point that he has become a an isolated individual, but that he's still significant enough to alter his surroundings and fights for survival. And in that way, like this struggle is important. Yeah, exactly. If the ending is optimistic in any way, the optimism is simply the fact that he literally is alive and there is a meaning just in the fact that he's alive and that his, his existence is enough. Wow. This is probably the most we've ever agreed on a movie. <laughs> is there anything more on this one or you want to jump to the next one? No, I, I think uh, our next area is going to be a comparison point between this and our follow-up movie, which uh, is going to send us to the other side of the earth and three years prior. Let us journey to post-war Japan where 17 ships are destroyed off the coast of the Odo Islands, leaving only three survivors. While officials scramble to figure out just what caused the disaster, an ancient religious dance is performed, a remnant of a time when the locals believed an ancient deity slumbered in the ocean and ate the fish. But when there was less fish to be had, they must appease this deity through the sacrifice of a young woman. Shortly after, a village is destroyed. Professor Yamane claims one of the indentations in the ground is a giant footprint, just like the abominable snowman in the Himalayas. He heads to Odo Island with his daughter, Miko, and her lover, Anne Marine, Haidako Ogata. The natives call it Gojira. It attacks revealing itself to scientists, a radioactive creature possibly unleashed through an ancient undersea cave opened through H-bomb and nuclear testing by the Americans. The villagers become sick with contact, and the army attempts to stop Godzilla or Gojira, but the creature is too strong and threatens cities like Tokyo. Amiko's arranged fiance, a secluded scientist, Surizawa, who's not a blind villain despite the eye patch, asks Amiko to swear secrecy before he confesses his newest invention, a terrible weapon, the oxygen destroyer. He laments the destruction of the world should this invention enter into the wrong hands. Meanwhile, the government struggles to fight Godzilla, who tears down electrical poles, topples buildings, and fries civilians with his fire breath. Citizens lament they've escaped Nagasaki, but they cannot escape this menace. Amiko caves and tells Ogata of the oxygen destroyer. They convince Surizawa to unleash the device on Godzilla. They set out to the beast's lair in the middle of the ocean and dive in gym suits to unleash the weapon underwater where it is most effective. Surizawa cuts his line as the pair are hoisted out of the water, dying along with Godzilla and the knowledge of a secret weapon. Professor Yamane laments, this may not be the only Gojira hidden beneath the ocean floor. Should nuclear testing continue, another Godzilla may arise. This mean, green, semi-truck eating machine needs no introduction. This is Godzilla to the American audience and Gojira in Japan, directed by Ishira Honda. Rawr! Yeah, you know, I, I was blown away by how dark this movie is. It is a very depressing <laughs> horror movie. I, I guess I hadn't seen it since I was a little, little kid. Yeah, um, definitely. It's really good. I saw it last, I think, in high school. I haven't watched all of the or any of the sequels and other kaiju movies from Japan, and I'd, I'd kind of like to. I feel like you haven't seen any of them. I don't think so. I've seen the remakes. I've seen the American ones. Uh, Shin Godzilla is great. If you guys haven't seen that, you should definitely get get a chance. I saw that in theater, and I'm actually really oh, nice. tempted to watch it again, maybe tonight. Oh, dude, I want to watch it. <laughs> Shin Godzilla is great. Yeah, we'll get together. We'll watch it. It's really fun. Totally. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Let's do that. I feel like in order 
to talk about this movie. We do like there's a lot of history here. It's obviously a lot to do with the atom bomb. So do you, do you want to sort of walk us through the the history of what's going on in Japan at this time? So this is post World War II Japan after the censorship imposed by the MacArthur administration on Japanese soil. But I think before we really get into that, maybe we should mention some things about uh, Japan's earlier history in the 1900s when they were an isolated country. And it was only after a display of force by, I believe it was General Matthew Perry. So they should definitely make a movie about this starring Matthew Perry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, they definitely shouldn't. I'm kidding. On their way to China, if my memory serves, they stopped off the coast of a Japanese city and fired a bunch of their cannons into it to just show how strong they were. They said, Mm. you're going to trade with us when we get back. And they left. Japan was like, we're going to trade with them when they get back. Yeah. And that was, I think, in the mid 1800s when they sort of broke out of their isolation, right? But Japan sees an increase of economic and industrial power. And during World War II, they attacked China and the surrounding Southeast Asian uh, countries, inflicting devastating losses on everyone and beating China in the war and becoming an ally of the Axis powers, although they didn't necessarily help when Germany asked. (laughs) Uh, It should be noted, Japan's version of World War II was longer. They had been at war for eight years by the time that the atom bombs dropped. So, you know, America only entered the war in like 41, 42 or something like Mm -hmm. that. Japan had been at it for a long time and they were really, really tired. Not all of the Japanese citizens also agreed with the government being in this war. And a lot of them really blamed the government for the complete devastation and tragedy. I mean, they had two fucking atom bombs dropped on them. Right. It culminated in the destruction of... Nagasaki and Hiroshima with two bombs, the little boy and the fat man, which to this day have long lasting genetic impacts yeah. on the surrounding people and the radiation from the radiation poisoning. So it was about six or seven years after the war that America occupied and helped rebuild, but also instilled a censorship on the uh, press. But it, it was a harder censorship than they were used to before in, in some ways, because previously when they would censor things out of the press, they would black it out. But under the MacArthur administration, censorship was not allowed to be talked about. So documents have to be completely rewritten or outright removed. This is where most of my research was focused on was on this American occupation. So, you know, they like enforced Japan to write a new constitution, which a lot of the Japanese officials were very much on board for. It was actually a Japanese official, Kajiru Shidahara, who said, uh, we should add a clause in this that we can't build an army anymore. And they did. They they were literally not allowed to have an army. The Constitution also gave a lot more rights for women. It gave women the right to vote, which had never happened before. And women did come out to vote in large numbers. They got 39 women into public office immediately following World War II. But before you think that this is like, oh, America did so much good, also note that the American occupiers were like massive rape just all over Japan. Like mm. it was it was not good. The, the numbers I had were uh, 330 rapes per day at the height. Like, it was, it was oh my bad, God. bad. Yeah. Okay. That's really bad. Yeah. I guess we could say occupation's bad in general. Yeah. Pro- yeah. Yeah. But you cannot deny the impact it had on Japanese culture that brought all of this Western music, food, film, comics that is still popular in Japan to this day. Yeah, and it's not only through the censorship. It's just having half a million U.S. soldiers living in Japan for yeah. seven years, just despite the rapes and all that terrible stuff. Um, just being there, there was a kind of cultural infusion. So it was probably some of the first times that a lot of Japanese citizens were seeing American films, listening to the music, and just interacting with Americans in general. And there was actually a lot of envy where they they wanted a lot of these consumer goods. And it did change the culture drastically. You have these Japanese people are now learning about American culture and seeing the American dream, which I mean, we just talked about how fake the American dream was, but they're just looking at the television and movie depicting it. And they're like, Oh, my God, America's a fucking utopia. This is great. Mm -hmm. We should we should do this stuff. 
But that said, there was still a lot of resentment towards the Americas for dropping dev- weapons of devastating power on top of the Japanese. And it wasn't exactly. just the atomic weapons. It was also they firebombed Tokyo, which in one burst mm-hmm. killed more people than either of the bombs. That was a oh, direct really? response. That was a direct response to Pearl Harbor. If you ever watched the movie Pearl Harbor, that's the ending scene. They dropped napalm on Tokyo mm. and they killed a million people in that bombing. It is one of the oh, most shit. devastating bombings in all of history. I didn't know about that. Right. So so Godzilla, in a lot of ways, was one of the first movies to come out that was directly responding to these feelings after yes. American occupation. Because they were no longer censored. It was such a reaction to... Uh, American occupation, American influence, and just foreign relations that the 17 ships destroyed in the beginning of the film are actually based on freighters that were destroyed by American tests. Is that right, David? Yeah, American tests. Here, I've got it. Uh, it's Daigo Fukuryumaru. I'm sorry, I'm not Japanese. I don't know how to pronounce this. <laughs> sound um, pretty good to me, man. It was a, a tuna fishing boat with a crew of 23 men, which was contaminated by nuclear fallout from the United States Castle Bravo thermonuclear weapon test at Bikini Atoll on March 1st, 1954. I literally just read that straight off the Wikipedia. But yeah, it was a, a fishing boat that got caught up in the America's atomic testing, which they were doing off the coast of Japan because they could. And a bunch of people just fucking died. And this was very well publicized at the time. It was very much on the public consciousness. And the first scene of Godzilla is that, essentially. Yeah, that's terrible to think of. Back then, they used to explode islands and stuff with H-bombs and uh, atomic bombs and whatnot. Later on, they started doing it in land and building giant pits. Because they realized maybe they weren't spreading radiation all over the waters that way. So... Coming up to this time period, arranged marriage, which is new to me, I didn't realize this, was very common in society. Maya was their arranged marriages, and that was 69% of all marriages in Japan in the 1930s. It was decreasing after the war. Nowadays, it's less than 5% of them. I feel like the movie Godzilla is discussing this. I mean, they're obviously in the movie... There is an arranged marriage subplot that Imiko, is that the name? Imiko? That's how I was saying it. She is arranged to be married to Surizawa. Exactly. Uh, who is the eye patch guy. But she is in love with Ogata, who is the, the classical male hero type throughout the movie. And they're both just like, oh, we should just tell Sarazawa that we're in love and we're going to get married instead. And then he'll totally be cool with it. And then they like never even do that. <laughs> it's it's a very weird subplot. <laughs> I think uh, it's kind of cool. It's just that a lot yeah. of things about this movie are a little off, probably due to like budget constraints and just maybe not a lot of experience in the Japanese film industry at the time. Although I still think it's a very good movie. It's a great movie. She goes to see Sarazawa. And gets cold feet because he shows her his oxygen destroyer and basically kills a bunch of fish in a tank. And it's so horrible, she screams. And he makes her promise to not tell a soul about this terrible invention of his. And then a few scenes later, she's talking to Ogata and she's like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I went to Sarazawa, but I, I didn't tell him that we're in love yet. And Ogata just like touches her shoulders and is like, Got it. And then he runs off because Godzilla is attacking. And it's it's almost like they have this subplot, but it keeps getting pushed aside because there's just bigger stuff to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of like that. That's almost like, OK, we have this thing, but like our domestic issues are not important right now. It is cool because <laughs> a lot of movies are guilty of this. When shit goes down, they stop the action to focus on a dramatic beat. Godzilla does not do that. When shit's happening, they might cut to a dramatic beat, but other things are happening. Godzilla doesn't take a time out because some people have to have a lover's quarrel. He keeps going. (laughs) So Godzilla is not necessarily just a metaphor for the atomic bomb. He might be a metaphor for America itself. And it's kind of cool Mm. to watch this Japanese turmoil between progress and tradition constantly interrupted by America. Just coming in and stopping it. And I think that's a neat way to view it. Yeah, and I do want to stay on that for 
bit longer because I think that the movie has a lot of interesting stuff about tradition throughout it. That mm-hmm. you have like that bit in the beginning when they're doing a, a ceremony to put Godzilla at bay, and they're like, "Oh, you know, in the old days, this was like human sacrifice stuff, but we don't do that anymore." You have more references to the changing role of women in society, not just with her protesting and arranged marriage, but when they're having the big meeting where they're debating what to do about Godzilla, and you see all the men in the room want to cover this up like we can't tell anyone and all the women in the room are like no we need to make this public the people need to know and this divide is based on gender lines and i think that's so interesting like the the movie does seem to be aware of this changing culture that they're in the middle of it's it it might even be ahead of its time in that respect i i don't know because i was not a japanese person in the 1950s um, but it feels like it might have been predicting these trends in some sense. Hmm. I like how the whole movie is trying to contend with the introduction of disturbing forces of scientific progress, whether it's the atomic bomb or an occupying power meddling within their domestic affairs. And it seems like it's, I don't know, this like socio-political like dissertation on how Japan and the world might react to these kinds of things. And there's some pressure of like, do we hide the progress? Or is it too much for certain people to use, like in Surizawa's case? Mm. Or should we tell people? Like, because Amiko is stating like there is a use for this kind of technology in the right time period at the right moment. But it needs to be done very carefully. And Surizawa does not think mankind's ready for it. This movie was a a, a big deal for me when I saw it in high school because I remember mm-hmm. watching it. And I'm like, you 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 notice the themes. Like, there's no way to watch this movie and not realize that it's thematic and that it's talking about the atomic bomb. And I think I even knew that going in, but watching it was like this realization that it's. I'm not sure if it's strictly, I mean, it is definitely critical of America, but it's not only critical of America. It's critical of this technology as a whole. And it was just sort of this realization to me of how complex and and deep movie symbolism could be. I think that's true. And I I know it's, even if it was written to be strictly anti-American, I think there's enough changes in it so that it's not, and you can view it as a different way. It is anti-nuclear, sort of. Definitely. Um, but it's definitely a cautionary tale. I do wonder, though, so this is the Japanese version we're talking about, the original Gojira. But there's an American version, Godzilla King of Monsters, that was heavily changed for American audiences. I haven't seen this, but I've heard a lot about it. I think I've seen it. They, they introduce a new character. He's an American reporter. He doesn't change the story at all, but he gives an American perspective. They also cut out a lot of the lines that mention nuclear war nagasaki that's cut out of the movie it's basically censored yeah there there's a scene where a mother is crying and holding her two children and telling them they're going to meet their father soon because their father died in the war or something Mm -hmm. and now they're going to die from godzilla there's also a woman who mentions that she can't believe she escaped nagasaki and now she has to deal with this terrible thing it's also often overlooked that in this movie like after Godzilla's attack, like the people in the vicinity, the survivors have radiation poisoning. Yeah, they were all standing in the footprint and measuring it. And they're mm-hmm. like, they had the Geiger calculator and they're like, oh no, this has radiation. Get out of here, which is cool. Yeah. So, so Godzilla doesn't have scales. He actually has kind of like scarring that's supposed to be reminiscent of the radiation burns. Yeah. Um, Which is cool. It's hard to see on the film stock, though, honestly. I am curious your thoughts. Do you think the movie is specifically anti-America, or do you think it's more broad in that? I I think it's more of like an anti-war rhetoric than anti-American. Yeah. I I think it's cautionary, uh, a cautionary scientific tale. I I agree with that. I I think that, I mean, it's what we were saying uh, a few minutes ago, that there was a lot of resentment toward the prior Japanese government as well for getting them involved in this war. The movie is not pro-America. It's not forgiving toward America. It's implied to be an American test that released Godzilla. But I think especially with Sarazawa's 
own weapon of mass destruction, which he explicitly calls a weapon of mass destruction, Mm -hmm. that there is this idea that, oh, we are also capable of this horror. Sarazawa really only redeems it by sacrificing himself and ensuring that no one else will have access to this technology he discovered. I, that's a great point. I think that's why it's more of an anti-war rhetoric rather than yeah. just simply anti-American, because it seems like that's kind of knowing that Japan itself is capable of atrocity. And yeah. considering this is ten years af- less than 10 years after Japan committed atrocities, that seems kind of very self-reflective, which is almost novel in films like this. Yeah, Sarazawa's fear is not imagine if America gets a hold of this technology I found. It's imagine if literally anyone gets a hold of this technology I found. Right. And I think this is a good point to jump into comparisons because mm-hmm. this movie is so self-reflective, whereas The Incredible Shrinking Man is, I think, almost too optimistic to be self-reflective. <laughs> it's also through a culture that did not just go through nuclear holocaust. I mean, America still went through shit, not nearly on the same level, and I think that is readily apparent. Both movies relate to atomic energy. I I was watching an interview with Jack Arnold, the director of The Incredible Shrinking Man, because I have the DVD, so I had access to all this behind-the-scenes stuff. And in an interview, Jack Arnold literally says, who knows what can happen if this atomic thing gets loose? So, like... Yeah, Incredible Shrinking Man is also very much aware of its atomic comparisons, but it's not as in your face because it's America. We're dealing with a more abstract threat here, whereas in Mm -hmm. Japan, it was a very tangible, this destroyed our fucking nation level threat. Yeah, when you compare like the amount of deaths between America and Japan in World War Two, there's not even close like american deaths are less than three hundred thousand. The japanese deaths are in the high millions and american deaths were mostly soldiers japanese deaths were like citizens yeah yeah excluding pearl harbor obviously uh most of the fight almost none of the fighting was done on american soil whereas japan it was literally in their capital city being bombed the people in hiroshima and nagasaki were all completely innocent same with tokyo like, yeah, they, they they weren't soldiers. They were involved in this. They didn't even necessarily agree with their government and they paid the price anyway. It's kind of crazy. So here's just a little bit of knowledge. Um, carpet bombing was kind of invented in World War II by the English. They carpet bombed Germany. But all the biggest single bombings committed in the war were by Americans. Now, the biggest were obviously in Japan, but the second biggest was that city where the guy who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five was. That was the single biggest bombing in Europe of one city in the war. It wasn't London? No. No, single time. Okay. London is just more publicized in Western consciousness, I guess. Well, it's also a a more well-known city, but... Yeah, that's true. Incredible Shrinking Man... It's not quite as explicit as Godzilla, but there is like that, that quick line of uh ah maybe there'll be more people down here with me pretty soon like it is kind of hinting at like ah that atomic thing is not going away and more weird stuff is gonna happen um yeah i i think that's true but i also think um due to how optimistic the ending is and it's kind of saying that mankind is going to be able to uh physically and spiritually overcome these problems as they turn up that we are I significant. Don't agree with that. You don't. You don't think that it's a. Uh, it, it feels so optimistic to me. Now I know the studio initially kind of wanted him to just be cured. Yeah, which would have been terrible. <laughs> I think that would have been a much worse ending. I. I mean, I. I could conceive of an ending that would be cool, where he somehow got cured. You know, if the cloud came back. I think the ending we have is so impactful that it would really like like it it, it's a great ending and it would be so bad to not have that yeah but if you had never seen that ending it would have been kind of like all the other sci-fi films of the time period where (laughs) you know the hero prevails and cures himself and i mean that it would have that is kind of how we see movies happening 
it's sort of like the ending of Godzilla. It's it's actually the inverse of the ending of Godzilla. Like the ending of Godzilla, they kill the monster, but they're like, this could happen again. We should be fearful. Whereas this one, he doesn't fix himself, but he says, but I'm mankind. We'll persevere. It's kind of the opposites. It's more of a individual enlightenment than anything, I think. Something we were talking about is that Incredible Shrinking Man is a very individualistic tale. It is this mm-hmm. one man's journey. And Japan is an ensemble. It's about the society as a whole. And that's also kind of fitting because, of course, American society is very individualistic, whereas Japanese culture is much more society-based. It's much more homogenous. Playing on that point, do you think Godzilla even has a main character? Not really. Maybe Emiko. Emiko, I think, is kind of the closest we have to a main character, but she's not very active. She's more just the POV that wanders through all these scenarios. I almost feel like Godzilla is the main character. That's fair. Yamane is the biggest name because he's Takashi Shimura, who is one of Akira Kurosawa's favorite actors. He's in Ikiru, where he is gives a brilliant, beautiful performance. And, and he's by far the best actor in the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's not even a contest there. <laughs> I think I agree with you. There's not... There's not really a main character. Godzilla, yeah, Godzilla's the star of the movie. Whereas Incredible Shrinking Man, Grant Williams is the star of the movie. He's excellent, and it's a shame he didn't have a bigger career. Jack Arnold really tried to make him a big deal. Uh, that interview I watched just has like three minutes of Jack Arnold just raving about how great Grant Williams is. <laughs> wow. Uh, he was definitely a trooper. There were a lot of problems on set where he like almost drowned and got injured and he kept doing it. Oh, wow. I think I forgot to mention this. The tarantula might be the same tarantula that was it's in not. the movie tarantula. It's not. But that's <laughs> that's probably a myth because they've more likely used multiple tarantulas because they kept dying under the lights. Whereas the cat is actually the most famous cat ever who's in a bunch of stuff. It's the cat from Breakfast at Tiffany's. There you go. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. It's a different tarantula. It's not the same tarantula. It's just a rumor. I looked into it. Do you think these fears, whether optimistic or pessimistic, could be used in a remake or another movie that would translate to today? Now, obviously, Godzilla's been done 30 other times. But do you think the way it's done could be either translated with either a Godzilla movie or something similar to today? And the same for The Shrinking Man. I'm in between. I think yes and no. Mm. Um, no, because these movies are very, very specific to their time. But also kind of yes, because we, we still like these movies. Like we still are watching them and getting a lot from them. So I think that there is clearly something more universal to them that is not just specific to the 1950s. I mean, Nuclear war is still a fucking threat. We live in New York City. I'm all the time thinking about like, man, if anyone wanted to nuke us, then they, they'd probably start here and we could just like be killed at any moment. <laughs> like, no, I'm still afraid of nuclear war. <laughs> I, I do think about that sometimes. I'm almost like, I, I see it both ways. Like, maybe I'd rather be in New York City than like Long Island, New Jersey, because then I would just die immediately. Hmm. The H-bombs are so, are like 10 times the size of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. They're so much more destructive than anything that was actually used in combat. It's almost inconceivable. Now, I, I wonder, I, I don't think, I think all the cultural influences, like we talked about earlier, going into Gojira were so significant to the movie being such a phenomenon at the time it was released that it might not translate as well. And that's why so many Gojira movies are just a giant monster running around which we all enjoy a lot, but it's missing that internalized fear of like societal upheaval manifest Mm. in a giant radiation type of machine. So I think if they were going to do a movie where the monster, the big bad, was the manifestation of the fear of technological progress, we, we might see it in a very different form, like a virus or something like that, or any other type of uh, techno horror thing we've seen in recent times, like for instance, uh, Event Horizon, you know, interdimensional shift, or even uh, those Cloverfield type movies. It is a cautionary tale about potential science. I I just don't know if 
people would react in the same way to radiation as a threat like this? I feel like the modern way of looking at it is more Lovecraftian, if anything, and that Godzilla is this massive thing that we can't quite comprehend. Mm. And it is this how minuscule we are compared to nature, which both movies are also tapping into that. I mean, Incredible Shrinking Man, we are literally minuscule mm-hmm. when paired against nature. And Godzilla, he's, he's just so fucking big that we might as well be minuscule. But what's cool about Godzilla is that Godzilla is of the Earth. He predates us. And he's coming back to shell us, kind of, kind of like in he's a physical way. He's as old as a dinosaur, so two million years. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they didn't change that for the American one either. It was still two million years, <laughs> which is insane. God- Godzilla is like predates us. He he's an ancient thing, which is kind of like these molecules we're playing with. These atoms yep. are ancient, like they're the building blocks, and mm. it's it's the physical, it's the physics of the universe, us against it. It's it's mankind versus the universe, kind of. And, and Godzilla is like we are so small compared to all this. We are almost nothing. We need to be extremely careful. We're on the knife's edge. Whereas I think like the shrinking man is acknowledging how small we are in comparison to all these enormities in the universe, but that w- we we are going to be okay. Like this is our condition and mankind is familiar with this condition, whether we're pushing a rock or shrinking ourselves into nothing or fighting a giant lizard. So I think that idea might translate. I just don't know like the atomic terror aspect. I don't think that translates. Yeah, sure. I mean, nowadays we know a lot more about radiation that we we mm-hmm. we know that like we're not going to be shrinking. We're we're just going to get cancer and die. But it is, you know, it's we split the atom and when we split the atom, we're opening this Pandora's box which is the the atom itself. The atom is the Pandora's box that we have now opened and we don't know what's going to happen. Um Another American movie that came out around this time is Them with the Giant Ants, the other inspiration for Ant-Man, uh, <laughs> which I, I I almost said we should use that one instead to compare with Gojira. But watching Them, it's 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 just the same movie as Godzilla. It's it's the same movie beat for beat. It's atomic testing has released this giant monsters into society and then it becomes like this military procedural of figuring out how to fight it. And then it ends with a monologue of, uh, there was more testing, so that this is going to happen again. And we should all be afraid because there's going to be more giant ants. <laughs> it's the same movie. Um... <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we didn't have to watch that one, actually, because I've seen them and I don't remember it. So it couldn't have been that great. It's okay. But they are remaking it, right? Yeah, and I think that's good because I think that there's more you can do with it. So I, I actually have some pretty good hopes for the remake. Tying into your, will these movies translate to a modern audience? I mean, maybe nowadays it's genetic engineering is the new thing. Uh, now if they do an Incredible Shrinking Man, it's some genetic engineering went horribly wrong so that he starts shrinking at some point in his life. Like, we are still teasing nature. We are still pushing up against mm-hmm. these crazy things in science we we've destroyed the world with climate change like all of these things we're doing are are leading us to extinction the climate change thing like even the new last of us show which we mentioned in the beginning of the episode they they blame climate change in the first episode of it they do so that's kind of the new big bad you mentioned the day the earth stood still earlier in the episode the remake of that one changed it from nuclear devastation to climate change Yeah, I didn't really like that remake. Yeah. I I guess that's kind of my point. Like, atomic terror has kind of almost become a joke at this point. Like, the atomic bomb creating a monster has become like the Godzilla sequels, which were a joke compared to the original. I'm sure some of them are great. I haven't seen them all. It's only a joke until someone drops another bomb. Well, yeah, and hopefully that never happens. Hopefully that never happens. This is before, I think, the concept of like mutually assured destruction, which mm-hmm. was this theory that there, no one will actually drop a bomb because they know that if they do, then the entire world blows up, including themselves, that there, there will be a counter strike. But there are still a lot of fears of like 
mechanical error is what causes a nuclear holocaust and failsafe. In Doctor Strangelove, it's a crazy general, which there are a lot of crazy people in politics these days. So that's a I think that's still a pretty prominent fear. In war games, it's just a kid hacking into the system is what happens in war games. War games is a good movie. Yeah, and now there's still like bioengineering stuff and as bioengineering becomes more accessible, it'll be possible for some random ass kid in his mother's basement to just create an insanely deadly virus and just bring back the bubonic plague or something like that is possible in the future and is an active threat. You need something a lot worse than the bubonic plague to wipe us out. They can make it. We, for some reason, have like all the genetic sequences of all of these deadly diseases are just like available online. And it's like, maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> it is? Because I didn't know that. It, yeah, maybe these shouldn't be available. <laughs> um, huh. Yeah, we've opened these Pandora boxes. It is interesting that this Godzilla is really the only like horror movie Godzilla. The rest kind of are like mm. action spectacle. Yeah, that's fair. I still kind of consider them horror. But yeah, I agree that this one is the most deserving of the, the horror. Not the most deserving, but, you know, the most leaning into tropes of horror. It, it is mm-hmm. kind of the horror movie about atomic disaster. Well, it's probably the scariest one. Yeah, probably. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we review each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. I, I think I'm going to start this week with The Incredible Shrinking Man. I thought this was a very fun watch. It is a little bit hokey, but I really enjoyed the societal commentary in the first half. The second half was interesting to see how he survives in the basement, but not quite as interesting for me. I did like the spider. Mm, I'm on the fence. I think this is a three bone movie. I think it's quite good. Yeah, I think it's very good, especially when you break it down to atomic terror and gender roles and all that. I think it's interesting enough and it's fun enough to watch. And to get my wife to sit through a movie from the 50s is a plus. Uh, David, what do you think of The Incredible Shrinking Man? I disagree. I don't think it's very good. I think it's incredible. <laughs> I, I I absolutely love this movie so much. Uh, a large part of me wanting to go with this instead of them was just that I love this movie and wanted to talk about it. I love like the way it's paced that, it, you know, he's shrinking, he's getting smaller. And each time he gets smaller, you sort of reach this new level. So the story keeps changing and shifting to keep up with his condition and the movie just evolves completely like it's a tonal shift but it's a tonal shift that you follow through with and i don't really think that any level of the movie is weak and when you get into that like complete survival struggle with the spider it's like i cannot fucking look away it it is so intense and awesome and cool i i I am a bit of an arachnophobe as well so (laughs) um i'm impressed myself for being able to to watch this movie but also like it 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 becomes a little bit scarier because of that that the spider is is definitely terrifying even if it makes no sense for to be a tarantula in his basement i'm giving this movie four bones wow i'm not surprised David, I'm going to tell you what I think of Gojira. I really didn't remember much about this movie because I think I'd Mm. seen it when I was like seven or eight years old, maybe. Because I kind of remember going through a bunch of the Godzilla versus Kong movies and Mechagodzilla when I was very young, like six, seven, eight years old, maybe with one of my best friends and his dad showing us all the movies. So they're kind of all mixed. And I remember my father always said the first one's the only one that's any good because he hates everything. But the first one is really good, and I enjoyed it. Um, I really love the music, especially the intro credits. That's the best song by far. When Godzilla mm. shows up and there's all that uh, low bass and things, that's really cool. They're like, bomb, 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 you know, and he destroys stuff. The effects do not hold up very well at all. <laughs> you can tell it's two toy cars crashing into each other. But I did really enjoy the underwater sequence at the end when they jump in with the gym suits. And the uh, some of the cinematography is really great, especially when um, 
the kids crying after the village got destroyed. The woman's like pleading with her children to not be scared and all that. It's it's really like kind of heart wrenching and well done. So yeah, I'm gonna give it three bones, probably just because of what it is. It might be a two and a half bone movie, but I think it's good enough. I think it's very good. I think everyone should watch it at least once. David, what do you think? Yeah, I I agree. I think it's a really powerful movie. Uh, as as I said earlier, uh, watching this in high school was a very big deal for me and left a big impact on me and kind of helped me to get interested in film analysis in the first place. Yes, the effects are pretty dated, but I also think there's kind of a charm to that. I, I read one analysis theory that argued that the lousy effects might have helped to solidify Godzilla as a national hero and symbol that he is, that uh, because it is literally a man in a rubber suit, and you can tell that it's a man in a rubber suit, that sort of helped to humanize Godzilla and make him something that people could empathize with, despite what he represents. I love this movie. The acting's not very good, but I don't care. It's just wonderful and beautiful, and the travesty after Godzilla's devastation is so effective. The moral complexity of whether or not Serizawa should should use his weapon of mass destruction, which is very hokey. Like it's such like it, he he's sucking oxygen out of water, and the fish just turn to bones. Like that's silly as hell. But I love silly as hell, and I love it when movies take things that are really silly and campy and just take them dead serious. Uh, so I'm I'm also going to give it three bones. I think it's a great movie and everyone should watch it. It's it's a classic for a reason. Yeah, you know, I, I do really appreciate how they took that hokey aspect and played it dead serious. And, you know, I almost think like 1950s sci-fi films need a resurgent in the way that Tarantino mm. kind of does his genre flicks where it's done mm. very seriously. But it is playing yeah. in the tropes of the genre. Well, all right, guys, that's it for this week. The hounds are out. See you next time. To God, there is no zero. I still exist. In that interview with Jack Arnold, he talks about the effect with the drops coming from the furnace, and the effect for that was really difficult to get, actually. And what they eventually figured out was that he, he did the same way he, he would throw water balloons as a kid, is he took a condom, filled it up with water, and then dropped that. So when, when they figured it out, they just ordered 100 condoms. And then at the end of the movie, uh, the producer going through the line budget, and they're like, so Jack, what? Why do you have a hundred condoms on your, your line budget? And Jack goes, fellas, it was a very hard picture. We had a cast party. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome.